There's a, I found in the Old Testament in Genesis chapter 16, another angel visiting a woman to declare to her that the baby in her womb would be a son and give him this name. After the oohs and the ahs of the first viewing of a newborn baby, the most predictable question is this, who does she or he look like? If the baby is beautiful, it's quickly determined that she looks like its mother and her family. But if the baby is what my family calls just so sweet, as normally concluded that she or he looks like the father or his side of the family. So try to imagine that we were privileged to be kneeling in the shadows of the stable when the baby Jesus was introduced. Try to imagine the excitement of the chatter when those shepherds who said, let us go to Bethlehem and see this thing which has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. Then they went in haste and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they had saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them. These uncultured shepherds are jostling for position to get a better view of the baby that lies in the straw. They came to look upon the one that the angel had declared to be Christ the Lord. The promises and portraits and principles of the Old Testament are fulfilled in this infant. So this is what God looks like in swaddling cloths. Wouldn't you expect a stronger jawline or maybe a more mysteriously deeply set eyes? Those tiny lips, wouldn't one expect that the mouth that spoke the universe into existence would be a bit larger, maybe a bit more firm and not quite so tender. But whose eyes does he have? Are they Mary's? Are they Joseph's? To which his mother would have replied, he has his father's eyes. Last week we talked about he had the father's name. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. This week we look at the principle he had his father's eyes. And in my rereading of the Gospels recently, there, there, there's a couplet of words that just seem to just kind of jump continually off the page. And it is these, it is, he saw, he saw. Just, just some highlights of that. You can read it for yourself and mark it in your Bible. But in Matthew chapter 4, he saw the brothers as they were mending their nets on the seashore. In Matthew chapter 5, it says that he saw the crowd gathering, so he went up on the Mount of Beatitudes and he sat down and began to teach them. In Matthew chapter 14, it said that he saw a great crowd as the boat neared the shore, it said he saw a great crowd of people. They were a needy people, so he healed their sick. In the Gospel of Mark, it said that he saw a tax collector in his booth at the intersection of international highways, and he called Levi to follow him. In chapter 6 of Mark, it said that he saw the people and he was grieved because he saw them like sheep without a shepherd. In chapter 9 of Mark, it says that he saw a grieving father of a demon-tormented son. And the crowd gathered around and thinking, is there no one that has the power, the authority to deliver him? In the 10th chapter of Matthew, he saw the disciples interfering with the parents who simply wanted to bring their infants to Jesus so that he could bless them. And in Mark chapter 12, it said that he saw the confusion in the mind and the heart of an inquiring lawyer, a scribe. He says, what is the greatest commandment? How does it read to you? 
In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, he, he saw a weeping mother of a diseased son as they neared Nain. There was a funeral procession coming out. And he saw the mother and he stopped the funeral procession and he commanded the young man to come back to life. In chapter 13 of Luke, it said that he, he saw a woman who had been crippled by extreme scoliosis for many, many years. And he healed her. In the 17th chapter of Luke, it says that he, he, he saw the desperation of 10 outcast, hopeless lepers. And he healed every one of them. In chapter 19, it says that he looked upon the city of Jerusalem as the rebellious city. And he wept and he grieved over it, looking prophetically forward, being able to see what would happen in 70 AD when the Romans came in and destroyed the entire thing, leaving not one stone on top of the other. In the 21st chapter, we, he saw the offerings of the high-capacity givers dropping their mega-checks into the offering trumpets in the courts, but he saw a widow who gave everything she had. She had two coins, and Jesus saw that and said she gave it all. In the Gospel of John, chapter 2, he saw a young couple who would live with the shame and embarrassment of having failed to properly provide for their wedding guest. And in their culture, in our culture, you send out a card that says, save the date. They mark the date down. Then you send a card that says, RSVP, we want to make certain that we have enough tables and chairs and enough food and beverage for all that are coming. And apparently, either the celebration went longer than they expected or people that were uninvited. It's kind of like Jesus and his friends crashed the wedding party and they ran out of beverage. And uh, Jesus' mother says, you know, they're out of beverage. And he goes, what's that have to do with me? And ignoring her son, she just looked at the servant and said, just whatever he tells you to do, go do that. And he told him to fill the water pots and he converted six big pots of water into the best of wine, thus saving their reputation. Chapter 4, he saw a Samaritan woman at a well. He traveled the road less traveled and found himself in the presence, but he saw her for who she was in her shame and despair, and yet he rescued her there. In chapter 5, he took the road to the temple that would typically have brought defilement to the individual, and he went through the pool of Bethesda where the ill and the lame would lie, hoping that when the waters were stirred, according to the legend, that the first one into the water would experience healing. And he saw a man that had been crippled for many, many years, and he asked him a really strange question, would you like to be healed? You know, And the guy goes, yeah, I'm here, but I don't have anybody to carry me to the water. And Jesus said, get up, roll up your mat, and go home. And he was healed. In chapter 9, it says, as he was leaving the Temple Mount, he saw a 40-year-old man who had been blind from birth. And he anointed his eyes and gave him his sight. In the 19th chapter, we're told Jesus had said to the disciples, I'm going to go to the cross, and uh, they're going to crucify me. And Peter goes, that's never going to happen. We won't let that happen. And in fact, I am already willing to die for you. And Jesus said, man, Satan has asked permission to sift you like wheat. And I'm praying for you. He says, and by the way, before the alarm clock goes off, you will have already denied me three times. And just as the rooster signaled the sunrise, Jesus looked over and caught the eyes of Peter, who had just for the third time said, I do not know the man. And he ran into the dark and he wept. And probably the most stunning one of all is in chapter 19, 
when as he hung on the cross, Jesus saw the face of his own mother in the crowd. And he said, John, behold your mother. Mother, behold your son. You see, when the scripture says that God sees, it simply means that he perceives or he understands. It's an insightful acknowledgement, but it also always moves him to the appropriate action of response. God sees. I have a great pastor friend who is probably, it, on the scale of one to ten on introvert, he was as extreme as you can possibly be. He, he told me one time, he said, you know, Tom, he said, I, I can walk down the hall at church and literally have somebody walk past me, arrive in my office, and only then realize there was someone else in the hallway. I said, well, I don't think that's a really good thing for a pastor. <laughs> anyway, a friend of his from his church one time, about three weeks later, says, my pastor can walk down the hall right past you and not even know you're there. People want to be seen. They want to be understood. We have a God who sees. When he sees, he sees with insight perception, understanding, but he also moves into action. Now, what I saw in this pattern repeated in reading through the Gospels again, I also see it reinforced in the Old Testament. The, the God in Christ Jesus of the New Testament Gospels is also the God of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it says that God saw Adam and Eve as they were hiding in the trees. He says in chapter 6 of Genesis that he saw the sin-bent hearts of all humanity. God looked down from heaven and he saw that the intent of every human heart was to do evil continually. It says that he saw the rebellious people at the Tower of Babel. And yet he, he saw the heart of Abram in the Persian Gulf in Ur of the Chaldeans and his was a different heart. Even though his family were idol worshipers and, and false god worshipers, there was one that was willing to respond to him. He saw the favored son of Jacob when, when he was sold into slavery by his brothers and then when he made his way through the ranks and became in charge of the entire home of a great politician only to be thrown in a dungeon because of a trumped-up charge of sexual assault and just to be left to rot away there for years, God still saw him there and acted on his behalf. He saw the little baby that was untimely born. Every baby boy that was born under the rule of Pharaoh was to be euthanized, be put to death, and yet there was a mother that had a baby and she wove a basket out of reeds and she placed him in the Nile River and just at the right time along came the princess and rescued him. He saw the affliction and the abuse of the Hebrew slaves under the tyranny of their Egyptian slave masters. And when he had delivered them across the dry Red Sea on the other side, when they were languishing for hunger and thirst, he saw them there and provided. He also saw the faithful, forgotten shepherd boys, one of my favorite stories. The people says, well, we want to be like the people around us. Give us a king. And so God let them appoint Saul to be the king. And he was a miserable failure, mega failure. And then he says, he said to Samuel, he said, I want you to go to the house of Jesse. And I want you to anoint the next king of Israel. So he goes there and the firstborn, the oldest, comes into the living room and Samuel says, wow, that's definitely head and shoulders. That's a king right there. And the spirit of God said, that's not the one. And he went all the way through seven sons, and the Spirit of God still said, not the one. Finally, he says to Jesse, he says, 
you have any others? And he's like, duh, forgot all about the redhead out in the fields. Oh, we're not going to eat until you bring him in. And when David came in, he anointed him. Though others forgot, God saw him there. What we have in Genesis 16 is they have another woman at the well kind of story. As she was despised, humiliated, homeless, single, unloved, pregnant, vulnerable, and lonely. She had turned the only direction she knew to go. Though it was a demanding and dangerous journey of many, many weeks, she was headed home to Egypt. What would this pregnant Egyptian servant girl of the wealthy house of Abraham find when she arrived there? Could the family who apparently had sent her away as a servant now be able to support her when she returns? And would the shame of her out-of-wedlock pregnancy not bringing home a husband have created further painful rejection from those that she was hoping would give her a joyous welcome home. You come to Genesis chapter 16, and it tells us that God saw Hagar in the wilderness. Verses 7 to 12 is God sees a woman in need. Let me read it for us. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. This is to set the story. Abraham, 35 years earlier, had obeyed God, and he had left her of the Chaldeans. They had made their way up to Haran, about 600 miles to the north. They had stayed there for 25 years. They had become extremely wealthy. During that time, however, at the end, his father had died. And God led them from Haran down to the land of promise into Israel. Now they have been in the land of promise for 10 years. So we're 35 years from his obeying the call of God. And God said, you know, if you will follow me, I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will make your descendants as many as the stars of the heaven or the sands of the seashore. If you can count that, you can count your descendants. I, through you, all of the world will be blessed. 35 years later, no children. Sarah says, well, culturally, it's acceptable to have a surrogate mother. And I have this Egyptian handmaid. So you impregnate her, and the child that she bears will be our child, and then we can carry on the promise of God and the family line. When Hagar became pregnant, apparently her attitude went south or she became sick. Whatever it was, Sarah resented her. And she was harsh with her. She made it a miserable working environment. And Abraham, looking to just kind of, what's he do with two adult women under the same roof? Just let one of them do whatever she wants to do. So she treated her harshly. So she fled. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. The spring, if you're looking on the map, is on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah. Notice these two questions, most intriguing where have you come from, and where are you going? Notice that this stranger that meets her in a wilderness oasis knows her name and knows her vocation. And he still asks her two questions. Where did you come from? And she could have said, I, I came from Egypt, you know, a decade ago, Abraham, because of a 
famine here in the land, moved his family down to Egypt, and because he had an octogenarian bride that was beautiful, he lied and said it was her sister, and so the king Pharaoh took her into his harem and all that, and then God stopped him before anything happened, and then as they were leaving, he just, you know, just loaded him up with all kinds of wealth and goods and a few servants, and I was one of those, and I've been with him for 10 years. She could have said, I'm an Egyptian going home to Egypt. He knew her name, and he knew what she did, and he knew where she came from. But then he asked the question, so where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. Where did I come from? Abraham's house. Where are you going? Wherever I can go to get away from the harsh treatment and the abuse. A couple of principles come out of that text. Number one, number one, she could flee from the punishment of Sarah, but she could never run from the presence of God. Well, I have to be honest. I, I started thinking through this passage weeks ago. It seemed kind of strange to me that, that my heart would be led to Genesis 16 at Christmas time. You know, we broke our routine with Hebrews. And even yesterday, as I was rethinking the text, I thought, why are we here in this passage? And I concluded that the Spirit of God was going to draw one or two people here that needed to hear this. I said, maybe you're thinking it's time to cut and run. Kind of make a break for it. You, you, know where, you know where you're coming from, you just don't know where you're going. And perhaps you like the Egyptian handmaid and think I'm a nothing and a nobody and nobody even knows or cares that I'm here. But the fact is you can run from your uncomfortable situation, but you cannot run from God. The angel said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. Really? I mean, if somebody shows up in a wilderness oasis and they know your name and your vocation and your pregnant condition, wouldn't you think perhaps they would become an advocate on your behalf? That they would say, you know, I think you're, I think you're justified. Let me give you some kind of an escort. Let's see if we can get you safely back to your family in Egypt. Or let me go back and mediate and negotiate with you back home and see if we can just kind of change the circumstances. But to say, go back and go under... Return to your mistress and submit to her. And then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for their multitude. Go back, go under. God's plan is still going to be fulfilled. The principle is simply this. Obedience will always be your first step toward God's blessing. Always. He only blesses those. He says in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 9, is that the eyes of the Lord rove to and fro throughout the earth, seeking those whose hearts are totally, completely His, so that He might strongly support them. God is looking for those who have the courage to obey Him, even when obedience to Him 
seems most difficult. In the midst of your struggle, your number one need in your trial is to submit to the leading of the Lord. You need to understand that God is in control of your circumstances. One of Linda's and my fallback text over the last many years has been Job chapter 42, where Job says at the end of his battle with his supposed friends and his battle with the Lord, when he finally said, okay, I'm going to put my hand over my mouth and say nothing, and God says, that's okay, you be silent, but I still have a few things I want to say. And then finally in chapter 42, Job said, the plans of God cannot be thwarted. You need to know that God is in control of your circumstance. The throne of heaven is not vacant at this point. Secondly, is that he is totally committed to caring for you. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6, he says, Now humble yourself under the mighty hand of God so that he might exalt you at the proper time. How do I humble myself under the mighty hand of God and wait for the elevation or the recognition? And he says, casting all your anxieties on him. And panic attacks and anxiety or don't make light of those, they are at an all-time high with these masks and all the things we've been through. Is, is there a God who knows and cares? Is there, is there someone I can take my concerns and my fears to? And he understands. He says, yes, cast them all on him. Why? Because technically you are his concern. He cares for you. And he's already working out his plans and his purposes. The thing that she didn't understand is that beyond her affliction of the moment and beyond her present trial, there was a God plan and purpose being worked out. But then also, most generally, the will of God is the hard way. And you need to know that when you choose the hard way, which is usually His way, is that He will carry you through in the early days at Faith Bible Church, almost immediately, we decided that we needed men together with their Bibles open, Bible study. So men's Bible study became the first kind of extra church activity. And uh, we would meet at restaurants around Lincoln. It, our history was that we actually closed down four different restaurants with our men's Bible study. We'd, we'd go in one day and they'd go, well, next week we're going to be closed. We're going out of business. So we kept moving. And after the fourth one closed, I can tell you the whole story, you don't care, but it was decided that we ought to just meet at the church. And I said, that does not have a good omen, I'm just telling you. It's like, so they're still meeting here and we're still open. I'll never forget, we were sitting at uh, Kay's restaurant. Some of you old enough to remember Kay's in Piedmont. And we were sitting in front of the big window there at Bible study and uh, Roger Schreiner was leading the Bible study that morning. And he said, we were working through the book of Acts and he said, you guys... I've been studying this thing, and i got bad news for you. It seems like the will of God is always the hardest path, never the easiest. And that's true. Because it's only in the hard path that God can reveal His power and strength. If He leads you on one that you can handle, who needs God? That's why the psalmist said, Though I would walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I would fear no evil. He's a big enough shepherd and a big enough God. He could chart a path around the valley of the shadow of death. 
But he doesn't say, I'm going to send you into the valley of the shadow of death, and I'll run around and wait for you on the other side. But he says, though you walk through the valley of the shadow, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Somebody here needs to know that. That whatever's going on and wherever you are, you're not alone. God's with you. It goes on to say, and the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant, like she didn't already know that, and you shall bear a son before ultrasound and everything. That's, a, that's why I said, I was reading this going, wait a minute, this, this, this is like another nativity scene or something. You bear a son and you will call his name Ishmael, which means God hears, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. I thought it was interesting, she, she's she has been a handmaid in the house of godly Abraham for at least a decade. She would know about the God of Abraham, that he worshipped and trusted in him. But there are always those when you're unpacking a passage you haven't been in for a while, there's that aha moment. It's like, I didn't see that. And it wasn't her prayer that God heard. Though I would think that under the abusive, oppressive work relationship she had with Sarah that she must have cried out to the to the God of Abraham for some relief or some but it wasn't it was her affliction that the Lord heard later on in Exodus it'll say that God has heard the cries of the afflicted slaves of the Hebrews in Egypt it was her affliction not her prayers I also want you to notice that he could send her back go back and go under because he actually saw that there was blessing on the other side of affliction. There is a future for you that requires that. And so to remind her of that, he gave her a name for her son, which means God hears. Every time she called her son in from playing with his friends, she would yell out, God hears, time to come home. Every time it was dinner time, God hears, time for dinner. Every time he got in a squabble with one of the other servant's kids, God hears, knock it off. It was a constant reminder that she served a God who hears. Well, in the first few verses, God sees Hagar in the wilderness, but in verses 13 to 16, Hagar saw God in the wilderness. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. I love that line. If you don't have that highlighted on your screen or circled in your Bible, do it now. Truly I have seen him who looks after me. Suddenly she realizes. You see, the thing about going through hard times, trials, and challenges is that you learn things about the wonders of God's grace that you can't learn any other way. You will gain insight to his character and his ways and his purposes and all of that that you cannot gain insight in any other way. Suddenly, she realizes that in the hour of her oppression and abuse under the hands of Sarah, God was still caring for her. He was aware. He was there. You are a God of seeing. Truly here, I have seen him who looks after me. 
Therefore, she named the well Beer Lahai Roy. It is called the well of the living one who hears and sees me. She gives a name to God, a name to her son, and a name to a well. God who sees me. One author summarized it this way. That is the sum of all religion. All false religion is based on the principle that somehow I must arrest the attention and the care of a God that they would know that I am here. And that in knowing that I am here, he would step in and do something to meet the needs that I have while I'm here. It is the sum of all religion. It is also the secret to all security, he said. The reality is when you know that God knows, no matter how dark or difficult your journey becomes, you know that you're okay because you're walking obediently and faithfully with the God who sees and cares. But we know also from the Christmas story that it is the source of all true joy. Is that God who looked down and saw us as sin slaves, hopelessly and helplessly bound to our birth nature, no matter how difficult it became, how hard we work, we, we could never come up with enough good things to somehow pay off the penalty of our offenses against the holy God. We, we always came up deficit short, bankrupt. And yet in his grace, he saw us in that need and he sent his son in order that he might pay the penalty we could never afford to pay. And discovering that, we find out that it's because God sees. And when God sees, it moves him to action. And because God acted on her behalf, that is the source of all joy. So in verses 7 to 12, Hagar, or God saw Hagar's sorrow and affliction. And in verses 13 to 14, Hagar saw God's mercy and compassion. And then this principle. Once she could see beyond her present circumstance to the promised future blessing, she could begin to think less about the cruel mocking of Sarah. God didn't promise her that if she went back, he would change Sarah's heart and attitude. What he promised her is that in the midst of it, because you know that the purposes of God go beyond this temporary trial and affliction, you can pay less attention to the difficulty. And, and that reminds me immediately of Hebrews chapter 12, which we will someday get to in our Hebrew study, where it says that, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. He knew that on the other side of this trial and this difficulty, he would be seated at the right hand of the Father. Once she could see beyond her present circumstances to the promised future blessing, she could begin to think less of the cruel mocking of Sarah. So some principles. Our real need in the face of trial is to submit ourselves to the wisdom of a caring God. As I've already said, he is in total control of your circumstance. Whatever it is, no individual, no situation can thwart the plans of God. In the midst of it, he intimately and personally cares for you. And on top of it, he has already worked out his plan. He is a God who sees 
and hears. He sees you individually and personally. What kind of a God, the creator and sustainer of the universe, would pay attention to a pregnant Egyptian handmaiden wandering in the dangerous world of the wilderness and send someone from his throne room down to meet her in her moment of need? What kind of a God would do that? If God would do that for an Egyptian handmaiden, don't you think he would do that for you and for me? He also personally chooses you. He chooses many to love them and to follow them, but Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, that he has chosen you specifically before the foundation of the earth. He, he makes it his mission to call you to faith in himself because he has chosen you. And he's done it, and he knows you. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows you better than your spouse knows you or your children that are in your home. He says in Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 8 and 9, the heart of man is desperately sick. Who can know that? And God's answer is, I, the Lord, search the heart. So he sees you, he chooses you, even though he knows you. That you're rotten to the core, but he knows what he's going to do with you. And when in the midst of your trial you cry out to him, he hears you. And if you're willing to be quiet for a while, as he says in Psalm 46, be still and know that I am God, he will speak to you. Because he loves you. The bottom line, because he wants to save you. Again, as I'm watching the Huskers try to get the momentum back a little bit last night, I was asking myself the question, why, why this passage? And I conclude that, that some of you are here who have done everything you can to retire the sense of guilt and obligation before a holy God, and you are brutally aware that you just keep coming up short horribly short. As you finally come into the place in your life where you realize that if someone else does not rescue me, I cannot be rescued. But that the story of Christmas is the story of a God who knew you and loved you enough that he would pay the ultimate price to set you free from your bondage of sin, retire the debt you'll never be able to pay, and set you free. He wants to save you. By a well of water in a lonely wilderness oasis, Hagar was speaking to the Lord Jesus Christ himself. By a well in the scorching heat of a day, an outcast Samaritan woman spoke face to face with the same Christ himself. The man of mercy who heard the afflictions of Hagar in the wilderness and saw her desperate need is the very baby that was laid in the manger that had come to bring grace to the despised, to the broken, to the desperate, to the lonely, to the servants of the cruel mistress of sin. Look at what the text says four times. The angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. 
And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from and where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. And the angel of the Lord said to her second time, return to your mistress and submit to her third time. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be in number for the multitude. And for the fourth time, the angel of the Lord said to her, you will bear a son, you will call his name Ishmael, which means God hears because the Lord has listened to your affliction. A few years ago, we did a summer series on theophanies. The angel of the Lord is a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ himself. When he saw a crisis and a need, and he came personally and individually to minister, to meet that, that Old Testament angel of the Lord is in fact the baby in the manger. And he has his father's eyes because he too is the God who sees. So as the angel said, Glory to God in the high.